0: finally got there. A bit of connection issues, but it's it's really good to have you on the call, Ian.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Cool. So for those listening, today we'll be talking about building salience in brand marketing using video. So I am talking to Ian Barnard. He is the strategy director at the Creative Business Company. The agency has worked with brands such as Al Jazeera, Turkish Airlines, and the Toronto Star. And we connected by the MBA community. Just to get us Started as we usually do. Curious to know if you could share a little bit of context as to what is it that you're doing at the creative business company and how did you get started with the agency?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the agency was founded uh, relatively recently in 2019. It was founded by my colleague Faisal. He used to work at profit uh, in the UK for a number of years with a lot of big brands and then he decided to start his own firm. I joined in um, 2021, the summer, so about a year and a half ago. And um, th- the reason the company was founded was uh, was to help make brand marketing more effective and affordable. So I think brand marketing has a bit of a a, a bad reputation, especially amongst uh, digital and performance marketers. And the reputation isn't wholly undeserved. So we wanted to kind of challenge that and correct it a little bit. And we strongly believe in the business effects and opportunities that brand marketing can give, especially to smaller companies and startups. Yeah, we we, we feel like we can make brand marketing more effective and more f- affordable and more accountable for everyone.
0: Fantastic. So the big question is, why should brands be thinking about brand marketing?
1: It's a good question. And we're going to take a very business-focused point of view. Uh, The reason why businesses need brand marketing is because it's very difficult to scale profitably without it. So let's talk about why that is. There was a really great piece of uh, research that came out uh, not too long ago from the Ehrenberg Bass and the B2B Institute, which is run by LinkedIn, and it was was called the 95-5 rule. And what the 95.5 rule says, very simply, is that most of your customers aren't in market at any given time. So whatever your business is, if you think about over the next 12 months, all the customers that you're going to get in a year, all that revenue, at any given time, now, tomorrow, six months from now, only 5% of all those customers are going to be actually in market shopping for whatever it is that you're selling. Okay, so that's the first thing. So the 5% is a small group of people. They're actively shopping for what you're selling. That means that 95% of them aren't. What are the implications of that? I think the biggest implication is that performance marketing, PPC, digital advertising, whatever you want to call it, it really doesn't work on the 95%. It works very, very well on those in-market shoppers. That's what it's designed to do, right? performance marketing, if you're showing any kind of interest or behavior on the internet, you're searching for certain products or services, you're doing research, you can use performance marketing to target those people and show them an ad, which is great. What it can't do, however, if you are not in the market, if you are not researching, showing any kind of interest in something, it's very difficult to target those people. And even if you could target them, it's usually the wrong kind of messaging. Performance marketing is designed to get people to do something. Usually we want someone to click, right? We're trying to get people to convert. To do that, we need to get them, move them down the stages of the marketing funnel. So from awareness to consideration to purchase. And performance marketers are trying to get you to watch a video, they're trying to get you to download a white paper, sign up for a coupon, subscribe to a newsletter, and ultimately make a purchase. If I'm not ready to buy something, I'm not going to do any of those things because I just I'm not interested. So the whole approach, the messaging that you would use, the incentives that you would use to try and get someone to do something is not going to work for the 95 percent who aren't in market. So that's why you need brand marketing, because brand marketing is really designed to speak to people who aren't necessarily ready to buy something today, but might be ready to buy something tomorrow six months from now a year from now and so on so that's why you need it the other i guess two main reasons why brand marketing is a good idea for most companies is that it does two really important things the first thing it does is that it lowers your cost of acquisition your cac and it also decreases price sensitivity So around price sensitivity, there's a lot of marketing science research that's come out over at least 50 years that says the more well-known your brand is, the more familiar people are with your brand, the less price sensitive they are. They're willing to pay more for what you're selling just because they know who you are and they are familiar with you. The other thing is that it lowers your cost of acquisition because you stop competing at the point of purchase. So performance marketing works, like we said just now. When someone declares an interest, if I go on Google and I say, um, I need to find uh, vitamins, vitamins for general health. It's great if I'm selling vitamins because I know that there's someone's looking for that and I can target them. So can everyone else. So can all my competitors. So the fact that you can only go after someone when they declare an interest means that competition for that customer is at its highest that it can be. You're all bidding to go after the same keywords, searches and customers. So if you can get ahead of the game, if you can use brand marketing to get out before I'm in the market necessarily, it's going to be a lot cheaper. My cost per impression is going to be much lower and I get the chance to lodge in someone's mind, right? So I might not be ready to buy vitamins today, but if I'm already aware that this brand exists I know they sell vitamins when I am ready to start purchasing something. I'm probably likely to go to to them first before I do searching for, for other competitors. So what you like, I guess to sum all that up, what you're really doing with brand marketing is that you're building a pipeline of future demand. So instead of going after the people who are in market, we still want to do that and need to do that to be profitable but we're also kind of sowing the seeds of future demand and future customers to kind of lower my cost of acquisition and make sure that we always have new people kind of coming into
0: my funnel. So a few things to unpack there. I would imagine a couple of flags as to when you may think it would make sense to invest in more brand specific marketing would be Perhaps you see a slowdown in the in sales and that the pipeline's not getting built because you're not you know competing well against the competition as you're relatively unknown or you find people becoming more price sensitive. Does that sound right based on what you've explained?
1: very much so, and it's interesting when when you talk to a lot of performance marketers, especially the more senior ones, they can kind of see it they see it happening in real time you you eventually hit a wall. And that's usually when you've converted all the available demand that's out there. So again, if we go back to 95.5, if we've got the 5% who are kind of in market at any given time, you know, you want to try and convert as many of those as possible. But at some point, there's just, there's only a certain amount of people. There's only so many people that you can convert. And what you'll see is that your cost of acquisition just starts to spike and it keeps going up and up and up. And You don't get the same effects. You could, you'll spend more and more money on, you know, performance ads on search, on PPC, and you get diminishing returns. And I think that's that's usually when performance marketers need to step back and think, "Look, I, I need to do something different here. We need to reach more
0: people." It's interesting. I've I've seen that quite a few times actually from personal experience. If sometimes when you uh, you launch into a new Google Ads campaign and you're completely smashing it for for weeks and it looks like you're building up some great momentum and then it just starts to taper off and then tank you think oh what's happening it could be an element of what you're explaining there where you've just taken all the immediate demand and you're left trying to fight over that last bit of the five percent that is imminently entering the market would that sound right from your experience that's, that's exactly our experience
1: as well. We call it the CAC Valley of Death. Like when you first start advertising, things are great. You're just tapping into this fresh new pool of demand that you haven't gone after before. People are going to buy what you're selling because it's, it's new. They're, they're ready to buy. But yes, your CAC slowly keeps going up and up and up. As you get, ironically, as you get better, as, as you optimize your campaigns, you'll initially see your CAC go down because you're, you're becoming more efficient with your marketing and then it'll start rising up again, and it'll keep going up and up and up and up. And that's when you get caught in this bit of a sticky
0: situation. So earlier, I mentioned about building brand salience. For people listening, I know it's less of a common concept that I've heard in sort of tech related circles. But do you mind sharing what brand salience is? So brand salience is, I think, the
1: simplest way that I can explain it, is that salience is coming to mind in a buying situation. It's similar to brand awareness. So brand awareness is, you know, do I know that you exist? Salience is, does your brand come to mind when somebody is ready to buy what you're selling? So let's explain that a little bit. So if salience is coming to mind in a buying situation, how do you how do you achieve that? How am I going to become more salient to my customers? Well there's two ways of doing it. One is just through through frequency of advertising. You want to be in market as much as you can throughout the year just so people are constantly reminded that you exist and this is what you do. But the other way you can do it is by latching onto what's called category entry points or called CEPs. Category entry points are cues that category buyers use to access their memories when faced with a buying situation. That sounds very technical. <laughs> That's the technical definition. Basically, what it's saying is that what specific what specific event or environment can you make people think about you in order to get them to buy you? So an example of that would be Let's say you're thirsty. That's a general category. I'm thirsty. I want to drink. If you're a brand like Gatorade, you're going to try and um, hook on to uh, working out, right? Or exercise. So if I'm thirsty after a workout, I want, I, I, I might want a Gatorade. And Gatorade's advertising and their positioning is going to try and focus uh, on that and repeat the messaging that, you know, if you're working out hard, you're tired, you need to drink some Gatorade after a workout when you're thirsty. Whereas, let's say, a coffee brand like Nescafe, for example, they might try to get uh, "I'm thirsty before lunch at work. It's mid morning. I need a bit of a pickup, It's not time to go for lunch yet, but I'm thirsty. I'm going to think of coffee. Maybe I need to get a Nescafe." So it's these it's these different it's, it's these different kind of entry points to influencing a buying a buying decision for a product or a service. And the idea is that the more CEPs, category entry points, your brand can own, the more people will think of you in in different buying situations. And obviously like the the more sales and revenue that you're going to get.
0: Two things there. One is salience is is an idea beyond awareness. Salience is when you're the brand that comes to mind when people think of that situation. It's not just, oh, I've heard of you guys. It's like, oh, I think an, an, another example of the category entry point being matched with a brand could be KitKat, for example. Have a mm-hmm. break, have a KitKat, I think was one of their slogans. So would that be an example of of what you're talking about here?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. KitKat has been running that campaign for <laughs> I don't know how many years, but it works, right? Uh, right. Everyone, everyone knows it. No, that's the perfect example. Another great one is Coca-Cola. So you think of Coke, I mean, it's a it's a fizzy, sweet, cold drink, probably makes sense to to drink it, you know, when it's hot in the summertime. Coke Cola have been running this campaign for at least 25, 30 years around the Christmas and the holidays campaign, the Santa Christmas is coming is Coke. They're trying to, you know, tie the holiday season with their product to get more people to drink Coke. 12 months of the year as opposed to just 6 months when the weather's uh, you know a bit a bit warmer.
0: Interesting. Thinking back now to the uh, to the homeland, I know that there would be a lot of McDonald's related ads featuring people getting McDonald's after watching sports. And then obviously it's a big sports sponsor in Australia as well, so that could be an exa- another example of trying to match the brand with the category entry point.
1: Exactly. And this is where brand positioning plays a really important role with with CEPs so obviously brand positioning is is the is the framework that you use to really get, explain to people who your brand is who it's for and why they should choose you and a really good positioning will allow you to tap into as many different category entry points as possible
0: so zooming back out to brand marketing overall with the ob- desire to build a salience, you know, what are the different objectives people have here? So we talked about a couple of different cues as to when this would be needed, such as, you know, you notice an increase in price sensitivity, or you notice a, a flat lining or, or diminishing returns on your performance, you know, direct response style advertising. What would be some of the objectives that you would commonly see here? That's a really good question.
1: I think the biggest thing to remember is that you can't use performance metrics for brand marketing and building salience and category entry points because people aren't ready to buy. So it's a mistake. I I see a lot of performance marketers try and do this. They think, well, I'm going to use video views or we're going to track downloads. I'm I'm going to try and like come up with higher uh, with different proxy measurements that are similar to my like sales activated uh, performance campaigns I'm going to use that for my brand building and salience. It doesn't work because people are not ready to buy. Trying to force them to look at a video or to download something or go to a page is, you know, very rarely is that, is that going to be effective. So you need to use different goals and there's different KPIs and metrics when you're building brand. So what, is the, what are the overall objectives of brand marketing? It's to make more people aware that you exist is to make them more familiar with who you are and what you do. And it's make them more likely to go to you first when they're ready to buy. So you have to introduce who you are, explain what you do, and then do it in kind of a a memorable way so that you come to mind, you know, maybe like three months down the road when someone thinks, yeah, I, I think I'm ready to buy one of those things. So the brand metrics are generally more predictive then performance. Performance, you're always looking after the fact. I did something and I'm going to go back and check. Did people like it? Did people click on it? Did they interact with it and engage with it in some way? Brand metrics are more predictive. Um, you can use these before things go into the market to uh, gauge whether it's going to be a success or not. So a couple ones that I like to use is percent audience reached. You should roughly know who your total addressable market is for, for your brand. We know that salience is built through frequency, and also by what you're saying to them. So, just knowing how many people that you've reached in in your uh, addressable market is a really big thing to know. So, percent audience reached, ad recall is another thing you can test. Facebook actually has it built right into its platform. These are the ways you can measure that as well. Are people actually noticing and remembering my ads? That's really important. If they don't notice or remember the ads, you're never going to build those associations and CEPs in people's minds. And then there's another one uh, that I like to use called, that's called resonance. And this is a combination of reach and frequency. How many people am I reaching? How often am I reaching them? When you combine those two things together, you get what I call resonance. And the idea is that you want to be a resonant with as much of your potential future customers your TAM as you can over the longest period of time. And I think a lot of performance marketers are probably scratching their heads right now and thinking like, well, this is kind of BS. Like, (laughs) you're not actually measuring anything. This is how advertising was bought, sold and measured for probably nearly a hundred years before the invention of the internet. It's a very different way of approaching measurement and goals and objectives, but we know it works. Again, there's, you know, nearly a hundred years of research uh, experience and knowledge in these ads. This is how all the big brands that you know today became big by following these kinds of metrics and these approaches. And while it is uh, predictive, it's uh, it, it is very effective.
0: Got it. It's interesting that you mentioned some, some common mistakes there in that people trying to use thing like things like views and downloads and clicks and so on. Because I can imagine, I think early days, uh, myself and probably uh, some people listening, you may be tempted to try and use, for example, a Facebook traffic campaign with the logic that, hey, if somebody sees the ad versus somebody sees and clicks, the click is going to be a higher quality impression than, say, just a, a regular impression, for example. But what you're saying here is that you're looking for the reach and the frequency. And I suppose these these are the core metrics that you mentioned as well, you know, the awareness, the understanding and the likelihood that they would buy from you. How would you go about determining those three things? Would you be needing to you know, run a survey every so often to make sure that you see that increase or how do you go about that?
1: I think surveys are the most reliable way of measuring these top of funnel brand effects. So ideally, what you would do is before the campaign starts, you would do a very quick survey and look at your marketing funnel as a whole of the business, you can get an idea of how many people are aware that I exist, how many people are considering purchasing me. And you know, you'd fill out the funnel for every stage of your business, you'd then run the campaign, you need at least, I'd say minimum three months for, for brand effects to, to start being built, ideally 6 to 12. And after that time, if you've been tracking percent audience reached and the resonance and you've been hitting your goals, what you'll see is that when you run the brand tracker again after the campaign is over, there'll be a big crease in awareness consideration and ideally purchase as well. So I think uh, to answer the question, I would use marketing funnels you can use very quick surveys to uh, measure before and after. It's the best way to to get a really accurate view of the impact of the brand marketing that you're doing.
0: When it comes to building brand salience, what types of media are most effective for this? I think video is is the most effective because it lets you do
1: well, it lets you tell a story. So video has an advantage over all the other media channels because you can get audio and visual at the same time. It's really, it's it's hard to tell like what I'll call a story in like out of home in a poster on social media posts and so on. One is because you don't have uh, the same attention. So video can hold people's attention for longer. You have at least 10, 15, 20 seconds to get some kind of message across and that message is more engaging because we can, work, we can have music, we can have characters, we can have people. That tells a little bit of an entertaining story in it. This, again, there's a lot of marketing science research behind the use of characters and music. We know that this, this makes um, advertising more memorable. It sparks emotion and it allows you to tie your advertising and your messaging to these different CEPs in your category which will get people to recognize and think of your brand more often. So if you think of a recent example, McDonald's has just released uh, a new campaign, which is directed by Edgar Wright, where they, um, it actually doesn't show. So, so the ad is over a minute long. It doesn't show any McDonald's uh, restaurants. It doesn't show any of the McDonald's products. It's uh, people in an office who are basically fed up at work and all that they want to go to McDonald's um, for the day. And it's great. It's a, it's a perfect example of telling a little story, which links to a category entry point. I'm bored at work. I want a break. Let's go to McDonald's with my friends and my, and my co-workers. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example of of seeing this uh, in action.
0: Unfortunately, by the time this particular episode comes out, it would probably have been slightly old news, but hopefully not too too old news, but yeah, I was very impressed by that particular ad. I have a feeling, you know, they must have had some kind of a focus group or interview done in the background where they realized that team members might be signaling to each other this motion you know, with their eyebrows where they raise it that, you know, oh, let's get a cheeky McDonald's. They must have picked up on that from an interview somewhere and really ran with it. I get that impression anyway.
1: I agree. It was a very clever, very smart campaign to run.
0: And it's, it's interesting now that I, I hadn't thought of it originally, but now that you mentioned category entry point, if you think of that coffee break, lunch break situation at work, they've linked getting McDonald's with your, with your colleague to that particular situation. Yeah.
1: And, and it, and it was entertaining, right? Like it was, it was kind of funny. It was, a, it was a good music soundtrack to it. You know, it, it. It was it was a success on a lot of different levels. Uh, I think the marketing team at McDonald's has really been smashing it for the past five, uh, ten years. They're they're just consistently putting out really good advertising. I admire them a lot.
0: Yeah, fantastic, cool. So in terms of putting together a campaign to improve salience using video, what is the general process to something like this? So I,
1: I guess the that we've done it, it usually takes about around six weeks uh, from start to finish to put together a, a, a really good brand uh, campaign. We start with positioning. So what needs to be in place for the for the campaign to be effective is a really good brand positioning. We talked about that briefly already. But, we, we, you know, you need to make sure that the brand is positioned around a business challenge or need or a market challenge or a need. And you need to be able to tie it to relevant category entry points. So if that's taken care of, what we'll then do is say that, great, we need to find a concept now that we can tie to this positioning. That's going to be interesting, funny, relevant, unique. And then we need to find a way to get that concept over, uh, in like basically a 30 second script. So we'll write a script for an ad, It has to be 30 seconds or less. And we need to make sure that we touch on the CEPs and tie it back to the brand. Once we have the script and we've created the video, we use the 245 Media Framework, which was developed by an agency in the UK called Born Social. What the 245 Media Framework does is it takes your fame-building creative video, your 30 to 60 second uh, big message, and it turns it into a full funnel brand campaign. So at the top, you have this, this uh, the fame builder, which you're going to try and show to as many people in your target market as you possibly can. Then you're going to cut that video down into a 15-second short story. And then you're going to cut those 15 seconds even further into little clips, static images, GIFs, and so on that you can use on social. So from one video... You're getting kind of three different layers of content that you can use in different ways uh, across the funnel. So the fame builders at the top, you want as many people to see that as possible. You can then retarget people with the 15 second short stories to remind them that you exist and reinforce some of the key messages and CEPs that you want to lodge in their mind. And then finally, if there are people engaging and interacting, if they look like they're in the 5% of uh, in-market customers, we can use the, the, the cheaper and shorter GIFs, clips, static images, just to keep pounding away and reminding them that like, hey, we're here, you should think of us, you could buy us. So that's where your frequency can come in. So all these together combined gives you a, a full funnel marketing campaign what you're really doing is that you're creating and converting demand at the same time. You're creating demand with these big fame builders, which is introducing people to who you are, why they should think of you, when they should think of you. And, you know, you're using these shorter, cheaper clips to kind of push them further down the the stages of consideration to purchase.
0: All right. Got it. In terms of this particular type of approach, would you find that this is fairly similar to a lot of, you know, video marketing agencies out there or is this particular to your style or how common is this type of approach?
1: Well, I I haven't seen too much of, of, of the 245 Media Framework, which is a shame because it's really, really effective and I think more people should be using it. There is obviously lots of video advertising and I think people, uh, performance marketers do try and use a similar approach. I think the biggest mistake that people make when they're trying to uh, use video to advertise their brand, and if they're trying to cut it down uh, in, in a similar way, is they need, to, they need to make sure that your fame builder, your longer video is designed to be cut down so that it can still make sense and get all those messages across when it's uh, shortened into 15 seconds or even a GIF and a static image. It won't work if you try and take a like, say, if you take a TV style ad, you have a 60 second ad that's just that's made for TV. And then just chop it up into smaller pieces. That usually won't work. It's good. You're going to lose the messaging. You're not going to be able to effectively tie to CEPs. And it just gets a bit messy. So I think the uh, the main thing to keep in mind if you're trying to use this approach is that you need to design the, the fame builder so that it can get cut down into smaller pieces and you need to plan that out ahead of time
0: got it so just coming back to an earlier part of the process you mentioned starting with the positioning and making sure that you can tie the positioning to some relevant category entry points how do you discover those category entry points is it through research of a particular kind
1: yes you're exactly right so it's usually research uh, and research into the customer that's going to reveal these category entry points so for example we did some work earlier uh this year with a, a canadian charity called HuPo, and when when we were looking at the market and and uh doing our diagnosis one of the things that we discovered was that the number one thing that stops people from donating to charity is a lack of transparency over the 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 results of their donation so, it was a huge problem. I think like 60% of people um, are hesitant or, or just flat out don't uh, donate to charity because they're not quite sure where the money's going to go. And they're concerned that they're, they're not going to have the impact. If, if I'm donating to a charity, I want to know that my money's going to go to people who are in need. And uh, the reality is, uh, again, from our research, is that for most larger charities, the majority of the money that you donate ends up going to the charity itself to, to, to pay for its operating fees and salaries for its employees. So Hoopo was different in that they had the lowest admin fees in the sector. It was insanely low. So it was something like 95% of a donation made it to people in need, as opposed to paying for, um, you know, Hoopo's operating costs. We thought this was huge. So we'd identified uh, a clear challenge or a need in the market or a concern that people were having. So, as part of their positioning, one of the big messaging pillars that we had was around transparency and the fact that they did have such low admin fees and that the you know the majority of of the money donated would would go to people who, who needed it most. And we were, you know, it it allows you to build campaigns that really double down on this idea and you can actually go after all the other charities and say, look, these guys, you think your money's going to people in need, but it's actually not. If you donate to us, 95% of what you donate is going to make it directly into the hands of people who need it the most. So when you do your research like that, you can very often find hidden challenges, concerns, blocks to purchasing,
0: and you can latch onto those. Got it. And and through that process, would you have also discovered, you know, the moments in which people considered donating to charity to use as your category entry points? Or are you mainly looking for that, uh, I guess, that bit of insight for the purposes of positioning? For that, so for that particular one, it was more about,
1: less about when, but more about how they wanted to donate mm-hmm. or, you know, what would stop them from donating. There was a bunch of research into when people were ready to donate. They were a Muslim charity, so it was always around the time of Ramadan when people would so the challenge was less about when because you know Muslims are going to be thinking about uh, donating at, at the same time every year. It was more about well, if they're going to be thinking about donating, how can we get them to go with us with with Hoopo, as opposed to all the other charities that are that are out there
0: when it comes to making a concept. For the purpose of the campaign, creativity is probably not one of my strong points. And I've noticed that even more recently trying to do a bit more uh, creative work with some of the advertising we do uh, when we do PPC. But did you have any particular tips or processes that you use to come up with concepts for for a video ad? Within the agency we do. So
1: I'm the strategy guy. So I'm I'm maybe maybe like you, I'm I'm more on the numbers side of things. Numbers and research is my thing. What I but I guess the common theme that I've seen, at least in our work, is that it always comes out of a consumer insight, which comes out of research. So I think really having a deep understanding of your of your customer, of the market. And the challenges that are in the market, usually you're able to uncover an insight uh, or something that the compa- that, that competitors aren't doing uh, as well as you or where you have an unfair advantage and you can latch on to that. How you bring that to life, you're right, that's a creative challenge. How we, how we express that in a way that's interesting, memorable, that's where you need a really good creative team to come in and say like, okay, here's the insight, here's the idea, how are we going to bring this to life in a way that's going to be interesting, compelling and memorable?
0: It's it's crazy the amount of, uh, of people I, I talk to about this um, in particular, sort of creativity in, in advertising. Because if you know a lot of PPC marketers, it seems to be there's a bit of a uh, approach where it's, you know, let Facebook, you know, let these ad platforms work out the creativity. We just add everything that we can in there. And it will be A/B tested out or algorithmically selected as a high-performing ad. But if you're as as it sounds like, if you're doing brand brand advertising like the McDonald's ad, you you can't um, you you definitely can't take this approach. It's not an easy one, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think the whole A/B test approach works great for for in-market buyers, right? Like if if, if we're going after the five percent, by all means, you need to do. Uh, let the algorithm take care of finding those people and figuring out what to say to them. We're just trying to get them to convert. So I think in, in that case, PPC marketers are, are really smart to trust the algorithm and the whole idea of A-B testing creative works really well and it's what you want to do. I think they run into trouble when they try and take that approach and and
0: use it in the brand building side of things. What are some points of nuance that that you've noticed people might not fully appreciate or consider when it comes to putting together a brand, a video based brand building campaign.
1: I think I'll go back to the, to the point that I made before, where is that you cannot just treat it like you can't just take a TV style ad, or you can't just make a long video and then just cut it down into, into smaller pieces and expect it to work. I think you have to figure out a way to tell a longer story in smaller chunks and then make sure that you can deliver that story either in one go through your through a fame builder and then think about well how are we going to split this up if i'm trying to tell it in you know 15 seconds or even five seconds so i think there's a lot of strategic work involved in figuring out how you're going to split up and deliver this campaign so that it becomes coherent right because ultimately we want people to know the full story and we may have to deliver that story in smaller chunks over a longer period of time. So figuring out how that all comes together is uh, is, is a challenge.
0: Very fair. All right. Second, second last question before we go. If you could pick any product to do a video marketing, uh, a video brand campaign for, what product would it be and how would you go about doing it based on the process you just described? I'd have to go with portable bidets.
1: I'm a huge convert. They're not really popular in North America. I know in many parts of the world, you know most most households have them, but they just they've never caught on and I don't know why. So I would love to do some promotion for 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 a bidet brand in North America. So how would we do that? I think I think we'd have to overcome some of the perceptions that it's kind of weird uh, and not normal to have a bidet. So we need to come up with like a, a concept that would seem kind of friendly and not very threatening, but also get across like why you should use a bidet because it's just, it's amazing and so much more cleaner and environmentally friendly than toilet paper. So we'd kind of, we'd come up with a campaign. I think the fame builder would have to be probably friendly and funny and cute. There was a brand a couple of years ago that they made these little stools where you could like go to the bathroom easier. I think it was called like uh, the super pooper or something, but it was like, it was all it was was like a little, it was, it was a stool you'd put at the base of your toilet. So you could raise your legs, which was like a a more natural position for going to the bathroom. It was hugely successful. They ran these uh, online ads that featured this, like it was like, I think it was a magician or something. He would come along and like wave a wand and everyone would suddenly have like better bowel movements. <laughs> so it'd be something like that, something funny, something that could, you know, be shared and people would, would want to like laugh at. But also getting the point across that, you know, all the benefits of, of, of having a, a portable day, a bidet installed in your bathroom. So, yeah, I would try and reach as many people as possible. Our TAM would be huge. You know, it'd be like all of Canada. I'd cut that down into smaller little uh, clips. Anybody who watched the video, who clicked on it, they'd be retargeted with these shorter clips, which would have more clear calls to action to drive them to a website
0: to consider to purchase uh, the product. Fantastic. So if, if there are any uh, portable bidet companies listening, you do know where to go. Uh, <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> I'll make you famous. That's it. It it does remind me there are a couple of products that you do notice over time that, that should be popular, but they're not. One one that comes to mind is the, um, I'm not sure if you tr- use them in Canada, but it's a digital door lock where instead of using a, a key, you would have a key card or you would enter a PIN code at the door. And it, it's very convenient for apartment blocks, but it doesn't seem to be that common in some countries, which is unfortunate because they're, they're great. Last question before we go for people who want to learn more or connect with you, where should they go? Check out our website, creativebusinesscompany.com.
1: We have some free white papers on there that you can download. If you're interested in learning more about anything that we've uh, talked about in this episode, there's a white paper called how to grow a big brand on a small budget. And we have another one on positioning called how challengers can position for growth. And if you like the more nerdy marketing strategy topics like segmentation and marketing funnels, you can check out my website at ianbarnard.ca.
0: Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ian. And uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much.